your brain might just help you learn something in more ways than one. Welcome to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Dr. Bell is a licensed marriage and family therapist. He'll be your guide on this crazy exploration designed to bring life back to our existence. Can you become the element of change in an ever-changing world? Possibly, but you've got to listen on to find out. Now, here's the host of Absurd Psychology, Dr. Gary Bell. Welcome to Absurd Psychology, everybody. Okay, this week, uh, this show was asked for by several listeners, and so I decided to go ahead and put it out there. It's on uh, forensic psychology, criminal profiling, and we're going to actually go through some killer profiles. So that's uh, the show today. But we got to break out exactly what is forensic psychology compared to criminal profiling, because those are two entirely different fields. You know, forensic psychologists are, are most commonly licensed psychologists who specialize in applying psychological knowledge to legal matters, both in criminal and child arenas and civil arenas. They hold graduate degrees in psychology and most often a PhD or a PsyD. And, and forensic psychology is a, is a sub-discipline of psychology itself. It has its own professional organizations, its own training programs, its own research journals. Basically, forensic psychologists are found in academia, public service, and the private sector. So, you know, they assist basically in a wide uh, variety of legal matters. Most of those like include uh, mental state examinations of criminal defendants like insanity or competence to stand trial. They do child and uh, custody and family law. They do violence risk assessment. They do uh, civil law, like personal injury cases. They also do social science research, which is interesting. Like they might uh, explain a, a topic such as memory or, or research to a jury, how a jury would remember things. Also, uh, mediation, uh, dispute resolution they often do, and also jury selection, which is also done by what is called an industrial psychologist, which is what Dr. Phil is, is an industrial psychologist. He specialized in jury selection. That was his main field. He didn't counsel people. So, you know, what is the, the, the state of the field of forensic psychology? Well, it is one of the most rapidly growing, growing uh, disciplines in all of psychology, um, basically due to the legal part of it. I mean, uh, so, so much is at stake in civil trials and in criminal trials that uh, psychology in forensic manner is a scientific approach, basically, uh, to be able to approach a jury with evidence based on the character of the criminal or the civil uh, litigation that's going on. And basically, they take a very scientific approach uh, without controversy. You know, they, they basically are hired guns who, who get paid to, uh, to substantiate a certain opinion in a legal case. You know, recent court decisions are causing increasing scientific scrutiny of psychological evidence, and this turn is leading to a growth in this field. And in the long run, well-trained forensic psychologists are likely farewell in, in, in this world and uh, because there's a lot of skepticism and a, a very demanding marketplace for the future. So this is a very promising career, but it, you really do need to have a PsyD or a, a, a PhD 
in this field. You do not want to not specialize in a forensic field if you plan on practicing in a forensic field. These forensic psychologists are uh, psychological scientists, and we, we compare data, basically, they do from uh, multiple sources in order to test alternative hypotheses. So the emphasis is on written reports court testimony that are scientifically valid and can withstand scrutiny in a very adversarial environment of of the courtroom. So good forensic psychology combines a strong science background with a solid investigatory skills. And so if you're going to become a successful psychologist in forensics, it requires a minimum of the following things. Becoming a, a solid clinical psychology training and experience. And that means counseling, firm grounding in scientific theory and in empirical research. So that means understanding uh, of scientific validity, research design, statistics, and testing. Also, they have to have very good critical thinking skills and a very thorough knowledge of social and cultural issues. So they have to know how people think from where they're from. And, 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 and what that environment is like. And that takes a very anthropological approach also. They also have to have legal knowledge, in, including mental health law, case law, courtroom procedures. They have to have, if they're going to be successful, they absolutely have to have excellent writing skills. And they also have to have strong uh, presentation skills and the ability to debate. And, uh, and, and they need to be able to maintain composure under stress, especially when testifying. And, and so, can you pursue it as an undergraduate? Well, not really. Uh, the, 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 the specialization process usually begins in graduate school and then moves on into a doctorate. And so, there's a lot of people that are interested in this field. So, master levels degrees may ultimately be uh, uh, false advertising. They really are not taken that serious. You have to, if you want to be serious in this field by, by statistics, it's obviously you need a doctorate degree to do that. So, and also, there is a lot of garbage out there. There are so uh, many universities that are doing this online and, and putting this degree out there without true accreditation. And so you have to be careful what program you're coming from because your, uh, your validity as a forensic psychologist is going to be based on where you graduate from. Because if they're putting out a lot of garbage, you're going to be looked at as garbage even if you're not. And so you really, really need to think about, you know, where you're going to get your education from. And if you're going to do this as a forensic psychologist and you're interested, you also want to get a graduate degree in forensic psychology. You know, if you're going to be successful in a field, you have to do hard work. It's hard. And, and so if you can't do hard work or if you're a lazy person, it's really not a good idea to romanticize the idea that you're going to be a forensic psychologist. You have to be somebody that's able to do research, is patient, calm under fire, good oral speaker, good written skills, as I said. And so, uh, you know, let's look at criminal profiling because that's a whole different field. You know, profiling or criminal, uh, criminal investigative analysis that's what they call it at the FBI, is the invas- investigation of a crime with the hope of identifying the responsible party. So based on the crime scene analysis, mm-hmm. investigatory psychology and behavioral science has a fascinating history in this. In 74, 
1974, the FBI formed a, a behavior science unit and at Quantico, Virginia, to investigate serial rape and homicide cases. Uh, two agents, supervisory agents, John Douglas and the late uh, Robert Rassler, sat out on, on a mission. And basically, they wanted to interview incarcerated serial predators and obtain information about their motives, their planning, their preparation, their details of crimes, the disposal of evidence, including the bodies of the victim. And their goal was to compile a centralized database in which the motives of serial offenders were matched with the crime scene information. So between 76 and 79, several colleagues, including those two, interviewed about 30 six serial predators and collected massive amounts of data. And so Douglas and Ressler soon faced a problem of how to analyze and share the data they had collected with their law enforcement colleagues nationwide. And so there was about a million dollar uh, research grant that facilitated the design of a computerized database system called the Violent Criminal Apprehensive Program. And this system basically allowed the FBI for the first time to cross-reference information from open cases involving serial predators to closed cases in the database in order to match behavioral characteristics and patterns. And, and more specifically, this system was designed to aid investigators and narrowly down the research of an unknown subject, uh, uh, somebody that you don't know. You don't know who the person is that you're looking for. That's an unsub in FBI terminology. And, and basically create a likely offender profile by matching the details in an open case to the details in a closed case. So um, the profilers began working in the field around 79. And that research and analysis wasn't really formalized until 1984 when the uh, National Center of Analysis of Violent Crime was created within the FBI agency, the behavioral uh, arm of that agency. So ever since uh, that system was developed, it's called VICAP. Local police departments anywhere in the U.S. or Canada can fill out a request form and submit it to that uh, NCAVC for analysis for a series of unsolved murders and people missing under suspicious circumstances or unidentified human bodies. So all of that is in that database, and that system is constantly updated every time a research team learns something new about a behavior or a serial offender and their information. And so this is the, the great thing about criminal profiling, is a lot of it is based on a very strong database that is shared with local uh, law enforcement. So in a, in a, a, as an example, in a, a serial homicide case, according to McCrary, which was one of the original researchers, um, FBI agents glean insights into criminal personality by answering questions about the murderer's behavior at, at, at four different crime phases. The antecedent, what the fantasy or plan or perhaps both did the murderer have in place before committing the act of murder, and what triggered the murder to, to act the murderer to act sometimes and not at other times. Also, the methodology and the manner. What type of victim or victims did the murderer select? What was the method and manner of murder? That is shooting, stabbing, strangulation, poisoning, or something else. Also, body disposal. Did the murder uh, uh, and body disposal take place all at one scene or in multiple scenes? And was there an attempt to hide the bodies? And then also the post 
offense behavior. And that is the murderer trying to interject themselves into the investigation by reacting to news media reports or contacting uh, police investigations. So whenever there's an infamous case, whether a terror attack or a serial murder case, critics come crawling out of the woodwork. Most often, police and governments are targets of bad-mouthing. And Monday morning quarterbacking and, uh, you know, sadly, these people that think they're great profilers never came forward to offer their thoughts. You know, those, uh, you, you have to recognize that profiling does not catch killers or terrorists by itself. Old-fashioned police work and forensic science help catch offenders. It's a team approach. However, behavior does reflect personality. Therefore, behavior at a crime scene, and this includes a terror attack, can disclose information about the perpetrator. And the more behavior is evident, the better a profile can be, and the more one can profile an offender. So the better the prediction value, in short, uh, the more I know about you, and the better that I'm able to know what you would do in a specific situation. So no profiler... Criminal profiler is always 100% correct, but what, you know, what does a medical doctor do? Well, well, what's a medical doctor's role? A medical doctor practices medicine. No medical doctor can guarantee that if they treat you for an illness that they can help you. You know, furthermore, medical doctors can't even guarantee they won't make you worse off. And so why is that? Why? Is medicine a science? Well, a medical doctor cannot write out an agreement stating that with certain uh, assurances that you're going to be 100% cured. And so you have to realize that criminal profiling comes with that same, uh, you know, the same affect. Also, human beings are very versatile and no one can ever predict with 100% accuracy how a human will heal or react. But we do... Uh, you know, we do look at what our, our uh, physicians with the hope that they can heal us or our criminal filer, profilers work the same way. We may not always be 100% accurate, but we work based on seeing thousands of cases, drawing on years of experience and using education. And again, criminal profiling is merely one of many tools that police, governments, and corporations have at their disposal. So sometimes it can help police narrow the focus of an investigation, but many times it helps reaffirm what detectives already know. So the research done by profilers has uh, helped focus on the right suspects in a case. Furthermore, they, uh, they, they provide interview tips designed specifically for a suspect because the evidence that they have and the research they have may uh, tap into what the methodology was and what the thought process was around that particular criminal. And for those who want to be a profiler, remember to keep trying. Anyone can be a criminal profiler. Don't let anyone discourage you if you're interested in the field. But do research and study as much about criminal behavior as possible. You want to learn as much about forensic science and try to get employment doing investigatory work so that you have good training. And after a while, you'll recognize patterns that allow you to analyze cases. So keep working towards your goal and don't give up. Now, what are some cases that are out there? You know, the, the criminal mind is one of the most 
useful tools in solving crimes. So uh, here's some forensic type of cases that were involved. Ted Bundy, number one, you know, a psychologist could spend a lifetime examining this guy's twisted mind. You know, Ted Bundy was one of America's most notorious charismatic killers. Luckily, he stopped being a psychopath, I mean, a, uh, yeah, a psychopath, and he moved more to a sociopath. A sociopath is like a very sloppy killer. He, he, his methodology started to slip as he increased the amount of brutal attacks and killings, and, and he just became uh, less careful and more frequent. And so their psychological profile, which benefited greatly from uh, one of his former girlfriend's information, eventually ended the manhunt for Bundy and even linked him to other unsolved murders. So forensic cracked that one. Thank God. John Wayne Casey, Gacy uh, in Chicago, although complaints and suspicions from neighbors were ultimately what ended this guy. He was called the killer clown. Uh, he had a very shocking killing spree. So forensic psychologists ensured that this guy was, uh, this famous case would not go free on a bogus insanity plea. So working forensically through a series of interviews, psychologists on the case were able to determine that Gacy's murders involved premeditation and detailed plan to hide his victims' bodies. I believe he hid many of them under his home. And uh, so without, you know, forensic psychologist assistance, Traumatized families may have never experienced the satisfaction of seeing Gacy punished for his crimes. Uh, You know, they're also looking at the the case at uh, Radio City Music Hall, which was uh, back in the, I believe it was back in the 40s, between 40 and 50. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about a couple more cases, and then we're going to talk about criminal profiling cases. Come right back. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Dr. Gary Bell is a licensed marriage and family therapist in Southern California, but he is here to help you no matter where you are. Visit drgbmft.com. You can schedule an appointment with Dr. Bell, and many major health insurance plans are accepted. Call or text Dr. Bell today at 951-818-7856 or visit drgbmft.com. Dr. Bell could help you take back your life in four to eight carefully constructed sessions. Stop coping and start living in the now. Call 951-818-7856 or visit drgbmft.com today. Inspired, encouraged, and connected on our lively, award-winning, healthy living power hour, Star Style. Be the star you are with host and empowerment architect, Cynthia Bryan. Live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Tune in to the Power Party for positive, uplifting, life-changing talk radio. Visit StarStyleRadio.com. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com
You are tuned in to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. If you have a question for Dr. Gary or his guest, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. That's easy enough, but if you want to send an email, it'll take some thinking. Got a pen? The email address is drgbmft at sbcglobal.net. Or you can just click on Email Host on the Voice America page. Now back to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Welcome back, everybody. Okay, we're talking about forensic psychology, criminal profiling, uh, uh, killer profiles. Right now I'm talking about forensic cases, which is a little bit different from criminal profiling cases. But these are some famous cases. You know, there there were explosions at uh, Radio City Music Hall back in the between the 40s and the 50s. There was an ongoing series of bombings in Radio City Music Hall, and that's in New York City. And this is a very intriguing case because it's often forgotten. This case, which involved more than a dozen explosions between 1940 and 50, proved so problematic for police that it was one of the, the inspirations for the development of the FBI. So psychologist James Brussel was able to determine that due to the intricacy and knowledge of the explosive devices, the bomber was almost definitely an engineer and most likely at Con Edison, which is the power company. And this profile directed the police towards George Metesky and the remarkable accuracy and the efficacy to the forensic psychologist profile increased the demand for the expertise of forensic science. So that case in the United States opened up a huge can of worms. You know, this guy, uh, Andre Chikatilo, uh, had a huge reign of terror And he had Russian police mystified for more than two decades until it became one of those most famous cases cracked by any forensic psychologist. To date, Chikatilo has been linked to almost 253 murders of Russian women and children. And and when they were growing frustrated with the lack of promising leads, uh, the the case uh, chief investigator decided to employ a new method. And so he enlisted Dr. Alexander Bukshanaki's help in in compiling a a psychological profile for the killer. And this information proved valuable in narrowing down their list of suspects to Chikatilo himself, who confessed the horrific crimes of 53 people killed in 1990. So, you know, although many people probably think... uh, uh, Silence of the Lambs was a great movie. When they think of forensic psychology, but it's not just a plot device in a, in a movie. The real-life psychological profiles from these five famous cases were cracked by forensic psychologists were the difference between letting a case go cold and capturing a criminal. And now let's look at criminal profiling, which is a little bit different. So the Vampire of Sacramento is a good case. In 1978, a woman was murdered in her home under particularly horrible, ghastly circumstances. She was eviscerated and her blood had been drained. Forensic psychologists were able to ascertain that the aggressor was small, the recipient of uh, disability money, disorganized, undernourished, and uh, likely a paranoid psychotic. And because there were bloody footprints left at the scene of the crime, they decided he was without a car and local. So the killer struck once more. Three days later, he killed three more people. And from this profile, police were able to arrest Richard Trenton Chase. And this guy was unemployed, 
uh, Carlos Mann with a history of his institutionalization. And according to his calendar, Chase had intended to murder another 44 people because he believed his blood was, was turning into sand and he needed the blood of others to survive. You know, Stuart Wilkin, this is a South African killer, also targeted two particular groups of victims, children and adult female prostitutes. But it was only through psychology that the two groups were connected to one killer. So Sergeant Derek Nor- uh, Norsworthy of the, of the murder and robbery unit in South African uh, police, who had been trained in uh, psychological profiling, had brought Wilkin in for questioning after the death of Wilkin's daughter. Um, uh, and, and he was transfixed uh, by the picture of Norsworthy's daughter on his desk. As Norsworthy continued in the line of questions telling Wilkin that he knew that he had killed both children but did not break eye contact with the picture. And finally, Wilkin confessed. So he just stayed focused on the picture of, a, of the guy's daughter. And, and basically, the guy finally broke down. And, and by the end of Wilkin's trial, it was discovered that he had murdered at least 10 people. And forensic psychologists determined that he targeted children because he had been abused as a child and was allegedly hoping to save children from that same abuse by sending them to God and prostitutes because his mother had abandoned him and his mother had turned into prostitution after his birth. So criminal profiling is, of course, not a perfect art. But then again, the human mind isn't perfect and it's not fathomable either. As the above demonstrates, uh, forensic psychology is an important element of law enforcement, and it saves one life. That is a great thing. Now, also, if you look at criminal profiling, the Lindbergh kin- kidnapping back in uh, March 1st, 1932, Charles Lindbergh Jr.'s 20-month-old son uh, of this uh, very famous av- aviator was kidnapped. And, and although a ransom of $50,000 was paid, the child was never returned. So his body was discovered in May uh, just a few miles from his home. And so, tracking the circulation of the bills used in the ransom payment, authorities were led to Bruno Hauptmann. And, and he was found with over $14,000 of money in his garage. And while Hauptmann uh, claimed that the money belonged to a friend, key testimony from handwriting analysis matched his writing to that on the ransom notes. So, additional forensic research connected the wood in, in Hauptmann's attic to the wood used at the makeshift ladder that the kidnapper built to reach the child's bedroom window. And so Hopman was convicted and executed in 1936. And that's once again, thanks to criminal profiling. Um, and the Night Stalker, I don't know if you remember this, and some of you may, some of you may not, but between June 1984 and August 85, The Southern California serial killer dubbed the Night Stalker broke into victims' houses as they slept and attacked and murdered 13 and assaulted numerous others. And with citizens on high alert, an observant teenager noticed a suspicious vehicle driving through the neighborhood on the night of August 24, 1985. He wrote down the license plate and notified police. And uh, it, it just so happened that the Night Stalker's latest attack took place that night in that area. So police tracked down the car, and it had been abandoned. But police found a key piece of evidence inside, a fingerprint. They used a new computer system, and, and investigators quickly matched the print 
to the 25-year-old Richard Ramirez and plastered his image on the media. And within a week, Ramirez was recognized and captured by local citizens who nearly killed him. And he was sentenced to death and, uh, and basically he currently sits on death row. You know, Machine Gun Kelly, this is a very old case. Um, but back in 1933 in July, he was called Machine Gun Kelly. He was a notorious criminal during Prohibition, taking part in bootlegging, kidnapping, and armed robbery. And he had another man kidnapped uh, in Oklahoma City, an oil man called Charles Urschel. And after a series of ransom notes and communications, and a $200,000 ransom was paid. This was back in 1933, the largest amount ever paid in kidnapping to date. Urschel was released nine days later unharmed. So the old man had shrewdly paid close attention to every detail to, during this ordeal and was able to relate to it to all the police that he came across. Although he was blind, uh, blindfolded, he could tell day from night and was able to estimate time of day that he heard airplanes fly above. He also noted the date and time of a thunderstorm and the types of animals he heard and, and what he presumed to be a farmhouse. And he used his memories and, and the FBI basically pinpointed the likely location in which Urschel was, was held and the farm owned by uh, Kelly's father-in-law. And so what truly linked Kelly and his gang to the kidnapping was Urschel's fingerprints, in which he made sure to place on as many items in the house as possible. So Kelly was sentenced to life in prison, where he died in 1954. And so uh, many of you may actually remember the BTK killer. BTK killer, blind torture kill, that's what it stands for. He was a serial killer who terrorized Wichita, Kansas between 74 and 91. And he murdered 10 people over that span. And the killer craved media attention and sent letters to local newspapers and TV stations. And he taunted investigators. And this egotism that led to his capture, however, uh, when he resurfaced in 2004 with a series of communications, he chose to send a computer floppy disk to uh, Wichita Eagle. Forensic analysis traced the, deta the deleted data on the disk to a man named Dennis at the Christ Lutheran Church in Wichita. And it didn't take long for police to arrest Dennis Rader, who confessed and was sentenced to nine life terms in prison. And by the way, this guy was not an official police officer. He was a community police officer. All right. So uh, if we look back into uh, uh, 1970, there was an army doctor named Jeffrey McDonald, and was, he was attacked um, early in the morning. Uh, and it, basically his family was attacked, leaving uh, the doc doctor's uh, pregnant wife and two young daughters dead from multiple stab wounds. So McDonald himself was injured by what he claimed to be four suspects, but he survived with only minor wounds. So doubt was immediately cast on his story. And based on the physical evidence on the scene, that suggested that he was also the killer. However, the army... Uh, dropped the case because of the poor quality of the investigation techniques. So several years later, though, McDonald was brought to trial on a civilian court, and key evidence was, was provided by a forensic psycho uh, psych uh, psychologist who testified that the doctor's pajama top, which he claimed to have used to ward off the killers, had 48 smooth, clean holes, two smooth 
for such a, a, a volatile act. So furthermore, the scientists noted that the top was folded and the 48 holes could easily have been uh, created by 21 thrusts and the exact number of times that McDonald's wife had been stabbed. The holes even matched the pattern of her wounds, suggesting that the pajama top had been laid on her uh, during the stabbing and not used by the self-defense of the doctor. So this crime scene reconstructed was critical for McDonald's conviction in 79, and he was sentenced to life in prison for those three murders. So, you know, this is interesting, these cases. It just blows my mind. You know, uh, John Jobert. In 83, two murders of schoolboys, uh, it rocked Omaha, Nebraska. The body of, of one of the boys was found tied w- with a type of rope that investigators couldn't identify. So while following up on the lead of a mysterious man scouting out uh, a school, they traced the suspect's license plate to John Jobert, a radar technician at the local Air Force base. His belongings, they found a rope matching the unusual one used at the murder which turned out to be Korean. Although uh, DNA analysis technology was not yet an option, the extreme rarity of the rope was enough to lead Jobert's confession. And furthermore, hair from one of the victims was found in Jobert's car. The child killer was even linked to a third murder in Maine when his teeth were found to match the bite marks on the boy himself in 1982. So Jobert was found guilty on all three murders and was put to death in the electric chair in 1996. These cases blow my mind. One of the cases that I'm going to talk about was not convicted. And I'm going to actually use Andrew Hodges, a medical doctor's investigatory of the criminal mind of Casey Anthony. And I'm going to use his own writing and talk about this. Because this doctor basically is able to break out how she denied to herself that she murdered her daughter and how her, her letters though they did not directly correlate to the murder of her daughter, actually show how her mind is guilty and, and her mind is operating around the idea of her murdering her daughter. He, she ba- basically projects her own anger at somebody doing the things she does in her own writing. You know, uh, uh, Hodges developed his, his thought print decoding technique in a very by uniquely uh, assessing unconscious, super intelligent messages of suspects during criminal investigations, and b- basically what she did was she wrote tons of letters to her friend in prison, and when these uh, letters were were uh, confiscated, uh, the, the analysis of these letters, though it does not directly correlate to her being prosecuted, actually shows how she truly is probably guilty for the crime that she committed, likely. You know, he based his analysis on forensic documents, uh, verbatim testimony, transcripts of police interrogations, letters, emails created by suspects. And and in his opening argument, uh, May 24th, uh, Jose Baez, which was Casey Anthony's uh, defense attorney, presented a complex alternative scenario with the death of the client's two-year-old daughter, Kaylee, in 2008, Baez maintained that the child had drowned accidentally and Casey and her father, George Anthony, conspired to cover up the, the fatal mishap. Baez further alleged that Casey's father and brother had been sexually molesting Casey since childhood. So taking the stand on the same day his daughter's murder trial in Orlando, Florida, George Anthony strongly denied both of those accusations. Yet in an extensive series of letters written 
to a woman and a jailmate, and her name was Robin Adams. Between October 2008 and February 2009, Casey Anthony's super intelligence, you know, that's what we're talking about, her subconscious, continually confessed unconsciously to the killing of her daughter and reflected on her ongoing feelings of guilt. And, and so uh, Dr. Hodges uh, basically decoded scores of thought prints in her writing found in the forensic documents, and when the defendant reveals the truth in incredible detail, and at times the decoded text also uh, reveals unconscious confession of her guilt uh, from Casey Anthony. So it's going to be interesting because we're going to go into how this thought print worked, and and, uh, this is the next uh, generation of forensic and criminal profiling is what we're going to go into. You know, her first Known letter from uh, Robin Adams, Casey wrote at some length about recent dreams that she was having about being sexually abused by her brother when she was between 12 and 15. She also revealed to Robin that her father abused her at an earlier age, and so uh, so she suspected. So Baez is aware of the content of these letters, uh, thus the accusations leveled at George Anthony in his opening argument. But but the defense attorney is not aware that the deeper meaning of Casey's written words. Baez remains uh, uh, focused on their surface meaning, and as a forensic psychiatrist specializing in the analysis of forensic documents, Dr. Hodges uh, looked into the human mind and the communication and and, uh, one thing consciously and quite another thing unconsciously in how she delivered her messages. So we'll go into that. We're going to dive into this and I'll give you some methodology here to help you understand how that works. And then we're going to go into the incredible, horrible case of sociopath Scott Peterson. Come back. us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. Do you like what you're hearing on the show today? Dr. Gary Bell wants to help you no matter where you are. He's fast, efficient, effective, and has a no-bull approach to helping you in less than 10 sessions. If you're ready to change right now, drop everything and call or text Dr. Bell at 951-818-7856 or visit drgbmft.com today. You can also follow Dr. Bell on Twitter at DRGBMFT for some great insight and direction. Are you ready? Make that change. Pick up the phone or go to the site, 951-818-7856 or DRGBMFT.com. Remember, DrGBMFT.com. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. tuned in to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. If you have a question for Dr. Gary or his guest, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. That's easy enough, but if you want to send an email, it'll take some thinking. Got a pen? The email address is drgbmft at sbcglobal.net. Or you can just click on Email Host on the Voice America page. Now back to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. So we're looking at uh, Casey Anthony through uh, Dr. Andrew Hodge's 
uh, examinatory work after the case was closed and after she was not convicted. But basically, all of us know that she is likely the only person that could have killed her daughter. Um, She also uh, knows that likely uh, her daughter was not an accidental death or drowning. But, you know, basically, if you look at the unconscious information that he extracts from her letters to Robin and Adams in prison, this is what the conclusion would be. And this is basically uh, what her super intelligence, if it was brought to her conscious, if she wanted to consciously basically say what she said in all these letters, she would, she would write something like this. First, I desperately need to open up about the murder. I killed my daughter by rendering her unconscious with an inhalant, then taping her mouth and suffocating her. Then I hid her body and left it lying around for weeks on land, not in water. Mostly it was an impulsive murder, although I planned it. I was blatantly stupid, obvious in carrying out the crime, and attempted cover-up. I'm deeply guilt-ridden. I know I'm evil for taking her life, as evil as the devil himself. Killing my daughter was my ultimate act of betrayal as a mother, and now I cannot get the betrayal off my mind. Now, guys, keep in mind, this is not her writing. This is the doctor writing what he extracted from her letters to Robin Adams in prison. Not These are not direct these are indirect things that he pulled out of the letters that he's putting into concrete words here to kind of communicate if she actually fessed up to what she did, this is what she would have said. Um, Here we go for some more. I was mentally imbalanced, uh, loco for sure, and now my overwhelming grief is driving me obviously mad. I am a religious hypocrite using my Christianity in a manipulative way to cover up I deserve capital punishment. I'm telling all this to the authorities to bring about justice for my daughter and for the consequences and judgment I deserve. And at the same time, I'm really frightened of being found guilty and being sentenced to death. So consciously, I'm constantly trying to cover up my confession with various denials, but I cannot stop my unconscious superintelligence from confessing. He goes on to write, uh, here are my motives. Number one. The most immediate reason I had to kill my child was that I desperately wanted my freedom from motherhood. After all, I totally missed out on my young woman stage and had gone man crazy, fearing the, the loss of my boyfriend. This had a lot to do with my impulsivity. Number two, there were deeper motives. I reenacted on my daughter major fears and emotional trauma that I'd experienced in my own childhood, and now she's dead. But if you can understand... Uh, uh, my unconscious mind is trying to tell you, you'll soon realize exactly how uh, to bring me to justice. And so, you know, you have to understand that every comment in her letters, the stories, the images, the ideas must be taken as an unconscious description that we are, that Dr. Hodges puts forward as a conscious uh, testimony to what she actually did. You, you have to remember the basic principle. When she's talking or writing about others, Casey is often unconsciously communicating about herself. So no one can see her as clearly or understand her motives as fully as her own superintelligence. The unconscious is a superior intelligence uh, beyond what is commonly understood. So constantly guides her confession. No matter what obstacles it faces, superintelligence gets the message out. So, you know, 
If you look at motives, criminals are typically controlled by deeply buried unconscious emotional trauma, which they reenact on other other people, other victims. And it's well documented that abuses, uh, abuse victims often themselves become abusers. Casey describes reenactments. Uh, you turn to into a cruel people around us that feed on making other people feel worse. Casey reenacted traumas in, in, to her jailmate. Her, she talks about her miscarriage in 2007 creates uh, guilt as Casey believes her unborn child died because her she's a bad mother. Later, she would reenact that guilt on a bad daughter who she kills. Miscarriages, psychiatrists have, have learned, often create major unconscious guilt in the mother while she often appears unconcerned on the, on the surface. So perhaps Casey riding around with Kaylee's dead body in the trunk of her car uh, reflects a picture of her carrying a dead child in her womb. People often act out their pain and their guilt. Um, you know, grandmother, had, her grandmother had breast cancer one year before, and there was a strong family history of breast cancer. So Casey referenced her fears of pre-cervical and breast cancer with her breast mass becoming hard and painful around the time of the murder. So Casey describes her mother being unconcerned at moments about the breast mass. And by committing the homicide, Casey reenacts on her child the helpless and death fears that she herself had experienced. So the extreme nature of murdering her own daughter suggests Casey had other death-type experience in which she may have repressed. You know, also having suffered from possible sexual abuse in the hands of her brother and also possibly her father, uh, Casey abuses, entraps, and overpowers Kaylee. She links mysteri- uh, uh, murderous impulses with the trauma, reporting her brother stopped after she threatened to kill him. Being puzzled over dreams of sexual abuse by her brother surfacing in jail suggests basically the validity to the abuse. She would not naturally understand that the entrapment of jail would participate dreams about previous traumas or of entrapment. And so she reports secretly seeking psychotherapy on her own later to deal with the alleged abuse. She also describes a masculine identification at points which may reflect the need to protect herself. So fearing the loss of her boyfriend and desiring freedom from responsibilities of motherhood, she basically, Casey, inflicts loss on Kaylee and the loss of her own life, her own young life. You know, um, you know at times... Uh, the, the letters broaden to a particular, uh, particular point that uh, key sequences which elaborate on the story. Casey is constantly communicating unconsciously and consciously simultaneously. You know, the basic principle is when she's talking about others, Casey is talking about herself. So, you know, in the first uh, letter, she revealed that she is uh, desperate to confess because the letter provides a striking overview of specific parts of her confession. And, and it basically, early in her first letter, she asserts that she's starved to open up, that she craves honest, uncensored uh, conversation and her super intelligence is screaming that she's ready to confess, must confess to get off her chest. But we should expect candid conversations to follow quickly, which it does. Then uh, she documents a horrible feeling of betrayal, not wanting to ever betray someone you care about. And through denial, she immediately confesses to the betrayal of her child and uh, in order to have life, she wrote. And then she must lose our old lives. You know, I would give my own life to have her back. 
you know, here she unconsciously declares that she deserves capital punishment and must lose life. Next, she mentions the religious hypocrisy of her boyfriend's family confessing uh, to her own use of Christianity to cover up her guilt. She also asserts that she's legal partners in crime with, with a cellmate. Uh, bet- between the lines, she's saying she committed a crime and has gotten away with it. So far, she remains legal. And, and she also writes about how hard it is uh, on another uh, on another inmate who misses her kids. I can only imagine what they're going through, losing their mother while their father is manipulating them. Such unimaginable suffering um, of children separated from their mother is powerful injured child story and 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 this is a veiled unconscious reference to Kaylee who suffered at the hands of manipulative Casey Anthony next she mentions specific accusations that she killed her daughter and her subsequent denials in which she claims she'd give my life to have her back this is key linkage to her dead daughter and murder accusations and it confirms that Anthony has been talking about betraying and killing her daughter. It also points out she realizes she deserves capital punishment, and her superintelligent confesses her daughter is dead, even though the body has not been found at the time that that letter was basically written. And she also continued uh, with with a uh, sequential story. Thinking about Kaylee uh, seems nice, but loony. Mad TV. You're uh, another inmate as she's talking to had two kids a killer tattoo not to mention all the other badass things that you've done madness we're, we're getting tattoos not like uh, the movie dude where's my car you know Casey Anthony's super intelligence basically announces now that she's a, a, a been a tattooed killer that she's been labeled and uh, traced her to the state of, of madness. Now she can say enough, I'm a killer, and her daughter's life is a stolen, like a stolen uh, car. And, and so the theme of that movie is more revealing. Essentially, it comes down to a, a ruinous device capable of destroying the universe. So the two forces, the destroyer, a group of women, and the protector, two men, both claim the desire to use it for good. But the evil force, the woman, is a secret destroyer of life, the liar, the betrayer. So Casey is confessing again that she is the evil female killer who destroyed her daughter's universe. And she suggests the real title should be, Dude, Where's My Mother? You know, this is uh, this is something. In looking at, at subconscious, once again, this is not true evidence. This is not a true confession. What this is is underlying how a person can justify murder in their mind, especially one that has not been convicted. You know, um, you know, she writes more suffering kids stories. You know, so many kids homeless. I want to target missing children. Uh, close to my heart with, you know, we could prevent it. More kids will go missing. You know, consciously, she's uh, unconsciously admitting that she targeted and killed her daughter, a child who was uh, at one time close to her heart, and she predicts Kaylee's missing kid body will later be discovered. Then she writes to Robin, I trust you with my life. Casey understands that this confession, albeit between the lines, could be used against her in court, and that Lyon also reiterates that Kaylee had trusted her mother with her life, a trust that was brutally betrayed. And so, 
we're looking at this case, and, and I'm just trying to reference to you a sense of, and it's probably not a very good justification, but he goes into enormous amount of detail breaking out each letter and how she is indirectly basically confessing to murder. You know, and, and so it once again, um, uh, Dr. Hodges does an excellent job of trying to understand the criminal mind of Casey Anthony. His name is Andrew Hodges, so you might want to look that up sometime. Now let's talk about sociopath Scott Peterson. Ever since Lacey Peterson was reported missing on Christmas Eve in 2002, Modesto, California, everybody in America was fascinated. She was 27 years old. She was petite. She was pretty. She was eight months pregnant. Four months later, her body and that of her unborn child washed up on the shore of San Francisco Bay where her husband, Scott Peterson, had been fishing the day before she disappeared. He was accused of murdering her and his baby. And his trial began June 1st, 2004. And on November 12th, the jury found him guilty on the December 13th. They recommended he be sentenced to death. So, you know, how could he do this? How could he do this? That's what everybody out. You know, well, you have to understand a sociopath is someone who does not appear to be to recognize or follow any of society rules. They have, you know, Scott Peterson lied uh, prolifically at every given opportunity, every possible chance he had to help police to tell the truth, not to flout uh, convention, to ignore his his marriage vows. He clearly thinks the rules do not apply to him, and and uh, it's unbelievable how this guy operated. I mean. Here's his patterns of lies and callousness in his behavior. Peterson told neighbors he was playing golf on Christmas Eve when he when his wife disappeared. He told investigators he was fishing, even though the fishing rod was not assembled and his lures will, uh, were still sealed in the package. Also, Peterson began an affair with Amber Fry, which is a massage therapist, a month before he killed his wife. And according to Fry's book, Witness for the Prosecution of Scott Peterson, First, he told Fry he was looking forward to settling down, but hadn't found the right person. Then he tearfully confessed that he had lied to her, saying he was married, but his wife had died before Lacey was even missing. You know, a candlelight vigil was planned for Lacey on December 31st, 2002. An hour before it started, Scott Peterson called Amber Fry. During the vigil, Peterson was videotaped laughing and joking with friends and taking a cell phone call while Lacey's family was distraught with grief. This dude was unbelievable. But, uh, you know, and looking at, uh, you know, he had, when the jury saw him, they spent almost six months listening to the prosecution and the defense of Scott Peterson's case. And after the death sentence was announced, several jurors talked to the media about the impression of Peterson. Here were some comments. In the courtroom for the last six months, I didn't see much emotion at all. When I looked over there, it was a blank stare. I still would have liked to see... I don't know if remorse is the right word, but he lost his wife and child, and it didn't seem to faze him. And while it was going on, he's romanticizing this girlfriend. You know, um, a big part of the end of the verdict was the fact that he showed no emotion when the verdict was read. All right, that's our show. Um, Our next show is going to be about hysteria, media, and delusional people. I want to thank everybody for listening. I would love to hear from you. 
My email is drgbmft at sbcglobal.net or Twitter at drgbmft. Now, remember, a sociopath's ideology is if you can't win, change the rules. If you can't change the rules, ignore them. If you're called out, then lie, blame, cheat, roll on the floor wailing. Psychopaths often recall that Lucifer was an angel, too. That's our show. Thanks for listening. That's our show for this week. Please join Dr. Gary Bell for another edition of Absurd Psychology next Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Now, go impress your friends and family with what you've learned today and have them tune in next week so they can be almost as smart as you. We'll be right back.